Let's pray, friends. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you came among us and your glory began to shine. So meet us this evening, Lord. So the Magi come. The Magi are probably Persian. In the ancient world, the big astronomers were Chinese and Persian. Not the only, but the big ones. And we don't know for sure, but it makes sense that they were probably Persian. We'll come to that again in a minute. It's possible that somewhere from the Jewish diaspora that happened during the exiles, it's possible that they had gotten it into their records and into their minds, the prophecy in Numbers 24. Now, there's an amazing moment that happens in Numbers 24 in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. The prophet Balaam has been bought by this dude named Balak. And this is the, something people did then. You would pay a prophet to come and bless your army before a battle. And if the prophet said what you wanted and things worked out, he, he was richly rewarded. If he said what you wanted and things didn't work out, it was uh, kind of bad news for him in the biggest way. Sort of, sort of the, the earliest high-risk, high-reward profession. You're either rich or you're dead. Prophet's reward. So Balak hires Balaam, and Balaam goes up and he prophesies uh, in favor of God's chosen people instead of in favor of who Balak wanted. And Balak says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, that's not what I paid you to do. And Balaam says this. He says, he says what can I do but tell you what I hear? He says, this is the oracle of Balaam, the oracle of the man whose eye is clear, the oracle of the one who hears the words of God, knows the knowledge of the Most High, sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down before God and God's greatness, but with his eyes uncovered, and he sees. And then he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall overcome the ruler of Moab and the territory of all the Shethites. He's prophesying of a great king who will be qualitatively different from any other king that's ever been and will make a whole new world. It's very possible that the Magi knew this prophecy and then they see this star and they go, oh my goodness, here it is. It's happening, this comet, this star comet thing. Now, there are a lot of folks who, who like to say, yeah, yeah, this never happened. It got made up later to, to try to make the whole Jesus thing big. But the thing is, there's nothing in it that would have been considered weird in that world. For Magi to be watching the stars, astrology and astronomy in that world were all one mush. They hadn't developed scientific astronomy yet. The telescope hadn't been invented yet and all that. They're careful sky watchers, and they don't have light pollution to block them. But astronomy and astrology are all mushed together in that world. So Magi watching the heavens, yes. A star comet announcing a ruler's birth, normal in their mind. What's not as normal is, yes, travel, yes. Bring gifts, yes. Bring gold, king, yes. Bring frankincense, he'll be a priest. Yeah. The one that's not so normal is myrrh. 
You bring myrrh? Myrrh is for embalming a dead body. You're going to present myrrh to the new super king? This is the moment that makes this unique to Jesus. It's, it's famously been said, there are, many God, there, there are many men who would be God, but only one God who would be man. Right? You ever run into that Christmas card? It's not bad, but it, all, it could be even better. Right? There are many men in history who would be God. But there's only one God who not only was willing to be human, but was willing to suffer and die as human. And that's what it's really about. And so instead of the way that we have been made in God's image and we reverse the favor and we make God's in our own image, myrrh is a God we wouldn't make up. Myrrh is the living God as he actually is. So why do the Magi come? Why does Matthew, who writes to Jews, tell this story, wonderful, big, amazing story that it is, and the other three Gospels don't? The point is in the myrrh. The point is that Jesus Christ is the end of national gods. Jesus Christ is the end of national gods. In the ancient world, every people have their God. You hire a prophet to come tell you that your God's going to beat their God on the battlefield. That's, that's what that was. Jesus is the end of national gods. You ready for a wonderful Jesus paradox? He's the end of national gods because he's both bigger and smaller than them. He's not only bigger than them, he's also smaller than them. They don't get born as vulnerable infants who will die. Jesus is the logos, the creative word, incarnate in human nature. He's also God vulnerable, God giving himself in self-giving love. He's both bigger and smaller than that. Paul comes to see this. It takes a long time. Read about Paul's conversion. He goes, he spends seven years in the desert getting his brain rewired, or 14. I can't remember if it's seven or 14, but I mean, it's a long time either way. He goes and gets his brain rewired, and he gets the story sorted out. And then he can say in the letter to the church in Ephesus, he talks about the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs. No more national gods. This is God for everyone, every people, unable to be contained by any one people. It's not only just for every people, even bigger than that. The grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ to make everyone see the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. It's God for the whole cosmos. It's God for the entirety of all that is. No wonder Herod is troubled. 
Herod is suddenly looking really irrelevant on the cosmic stage, on the stage of history. Herod only shows up in history because of what he does to Jesus. You ever think about that? Herod was a little Roman appointee in a place that wasn't famous, that no Roman appointee wanted to be in because it was a little backwater. And if he had never done anything to Jesus, you'd have never heard of it. And wouldn't anyone else have either? Bad grammar there probably, but they wouldn't either have heard of him. I don't know how to say that, but you get the point. Isn't it ironic? Herod calls the leaders of God's chosen people and they can't see. But the pagan astronomerologers can not only see God writing in the creation, God also speaks directly to them in dreams. And their hearts are such that they can see because Jesus is the end of national gods. So the people who were determined to keep God as small as their nation can't see. And the people who have hearts for God who are way outside that nation can see. It's a wonderful Jesus paradox. They were probably Persians. There is a, I think it's an 8th century Syrian text that says they were Chinese, which is a wonderful, cool thing if they were. But 8th century is late for that. They're probably Persians. If they were Persians, stay with me for a minute. We're going to take a little Persian diversion. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. And so Persians were Zoroastrianists, right? And Zoroastrianism is a, is a radically dualistic belief that at the core root of all being, there is a God who's good and an equal force who's evil. Okay? Is that a Christian belief? You have God and you have Satan. Is that, an, is that a Christian belief that they are, have equal ontology? Oh, I love you guys so much. Thank you. Nothing exists that has not been created by Jesus, apart from God himself. What is Gollum in the Lord of the Rings? What is he? For real, what is he? He's a hobbit. He's a hobbit who got really, really warped, right? Who, who lost himself for long periods of time and became almost unidentifiable as a hobbit. But at root, he is a hobbit. That's a Christian view of evil. At root, he was meant to be a hobbit. And he warped himself for so long that he almost lost his essential hobbitoidness. But, he, but, but Gandalf doesn't believe he did lose it. He believes it may be even yet able to come back into him. Zoroastrianists don't believe that. There's a good force and a bad force. They have equal ontology. They have equal being in and of themselves. And all of reality is the battle between them. Why does this matter? Two big reasons this matters. One is, if those people bring myrrh to Jesus, it's a big deal, right? Do, do those dots follow? There's no room for God to be vulnerable in the cosmic battle of Zoroastrianism. There's no room for anything but expedience. 
Tom Holland, the great English historian, when he writes his majestic, big fat history of Christianity, he begins way back in the beginning, he begins by arguing that the only people in the world who possibly came up with the torture worse than the cross were the Persians. Do you think the Romans were hard? The Persians were harder. The Magi show up with myrrh. It's a big deal. There's a fundamental difference. What's the second reason this matters? What was Nietzsche's most famous book? Thus spake who? Zarathustra, Zoroaster. It's the book in which he develops the will to power. Get it? These ideas are not dead. They're not esoteric. They're not way off in space somewhere. They live today. They live even among some Christians who don't realize that that's what they actually are believing and doing. But there aren't any more national gods. God will not allow himself to be confined to being a national god. Martin Luther King Jr., when he was at Boston University, or excuse me, when he was in seminary before that, he was reading a lot of philosophies. And he said, during this period, I had despaired about the power of love in solving social problems. He began to wonder, like, okay, this love thing is beautiful, but how does it really work? He began to wonder this. Perhaps my faith in love was temporarily shaken by the philosophy of Nietzsche. I had been reading The Will to Power. Nietzsche's glorification of power attacked the whole of the Hebraic Christian morality with its virtues of piety and humility, its otherworldliness, and its attitude towards suffering. Nietzsche attacked this as the glorification of weakness, as making virtues out of necessity and impotence. He looked to the development of a superman who would surpass man even as the man had surpassed the ape. The Nietzsche energy is still with us. A few years ago, major Christian nationalist youth gathering, a speaker whose name you know, said this. He said, we've turned the other cheek and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing. At least he knows he doesn't get it. I'm serious. I mean it. At least he knows he doesn't because he doesn't get it. God will not be reduced to a national God. Jesus Christ is the end of national gods. The Persian magi bring him myrrh. In the Christian world, the absolute rock-bottom root of all things, the thing that is the core center of all that exists, that animates and radiates all being and sustains it, is not a cosmic battle between good and evil. The absolute rock-bottom is just good. Because God is good. And God is holy holy, holy, and God spoke it into being and deemed it over and over and over in Genesis 1. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And the way God works with evil is to attempt 
to redeem it by the power of self-giving love, especially in the human, stirring and breaking and softening the heart. King saw this. He called it the double victory. The Sermon on the Mount convinced him that the power of Jesus was greater than the power of Nietzsche. And the double victory is not only to win one's own rights, but to convert the other person as well. So in the end, you end up with a friend. Almost seems almost impossible, doesn't it? Yet that's what King tried to do. King tells an amazing story in Stride Toward Freedom. If you never read King, if you've never read King, read Stride Toward Freedom. It's, it's, it's the movement book. It was written during the early days of the civil rights movement when people were starting to go, what is going on and who are these people? And they hurried up and they got this out in a hurry. And there's a bit in here. He talks about the night when he was at home and he couldn't sleep because people had been calling him and threatening him. And so he's in the kitchen, he's having a cup of coffee and the phone rings. And the person on the other end calls him the really ugly word and says, we're gonna make you so sorry you ever came here. And he has a young daughter. He's married and they have, a, they have their first child. She's very young. And he gets up and, he, and he's really stressed. So he talks about how he sits down at the table and he finally says, God, I don't have it in me. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's bigger than me. And King, during his days at Boston University, had begun to believe in a less personal God. He had been led into some of the popular theologies of that time in which God was a concept more than a personal relationship. And he says in that moment, he believed in a personal God. In that moment when he said, God, I can't do it. He said he felt the presence of God in a way that he had never felt it before. And from that time on, he would say, I know God is personal. King knew that at rock bottom, at the core of the universe, is a love, a love that's greater than anyone can imagine. So what is it that gives us confidence? What gives us confidence is that this love is the thing at the root, that even golems, Gandalf says, may yet be redeemed. What gives us confidence is that way back in Numbers 24, when Balak said, how dare you not prophesy what I want? And Balaam says, I can only prophesy what I see, but I see clearly what he sees is far off for him. But it's this, God weaving himself into history. What gives us confidence is that in the end, God reigns. And in the end, his love triumphs. Paul said it again. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence. This is Paul's confidence. In boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings, which are for you, for they are your glory. 
They are your glory. They brought him gold, and they should. They brought him frankincense, and they should. They also brought him myrrh. Our job, friends, is to live under the umbrella love of this God, to connect to God, to pray, learn to pray even as as breathing, to connect to community. The thing that connects us with every other human being is the gift of life created in the image of God. We share that with every human being. To connect with creation, the gift of being, we share with all other beings to whom God has given the integrity and the honor to exist. Let's just take a moment, do something a little unusual. Today's the Epiphany. That's the celebration of light. We have our third frontal up here, the light weighted, emerged, shines. We got a couple of images up here that Justin Kettle's been using to start his creative process of the light shining forth. So I just invite you to take a take a few seconds and just uh, sit with the light. Say, thank you, Lord, for shining your light, which is the root of all that is. Let him speak to you. Come, Lord, come and meet us.